Today's episode is brought to you by Reprint and Repurpose. Reprint and Repurpose is a small fabric business. They have so much fun creating upcycled fabric, offering crafters like you an earth-friendly fabric choice that can be used in all your projects from quilts to apparel. Please visit Reprint and Repurpose online at reprintandrepurpose.com and use the code PODCAST10 for a discount on your order. Thank you so much, Reprint and Repurpose. And now, here's the show. episode 189 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we are talking about building a business as a mixed media artist with my guest, Mo Saha. Mo is a mixed media artist and teacher. She's been published over 700 times in print media, appearing on PBS TV shows, and she's created several coloring books of her own. Her academic background in clinical psychology fuels her ongoing quest for wellness through creativity. Mo is a mom of three and lives in New Jersey with her family. She can be found online at Mo Saha, that's M-O-U-S-A-H-A dot com, and on Instagram as mo.saha.studio. Mo Saha, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to talk with you and to learn more about your career. Um, so let's start with where you grew up. I know that um, you grew up in India. So tell us a little bit yes. about what your childhood was like and where exactly you grew up. Well, I grew up in Calcutta, India, which is eastern part of India. And it was a very busy city. We lived in the almost in the middle of the city. And I was an only child growing up. My mom gave up her job when I was born, but what, how it panned out was she had so many responsibilities toward the extended family and everything. I spent a lot of time on my own and I learned quite early how to keep myself entertained and she would buy me art supplies and I would play with them and hours would go by. Nobody would even know that there's a child in the house. And, um, she would, she, my mom, she, she's creative, very creative herself, but none of my, actually, I come from a long line of women who are quite creative, but nobody would ever think of becoming an artist or making that in any kind of, um, use it in any kind of gainful way, so to speak. Uh, but it was definitely a way of life for them. And I just, loved seeing them do these little things with such great love. And, and what what kind of things would they make um, themselves? Like did they sew or what kind of other oh, creative yeah. things did they yeah. make? 
was cooking was one of the things my uh, dad's mom was very good it's just how she chopped the vegetables you know it, it would like amazing it's just and then my grand other uh, my mom's mom and my mom they would sew they would crochet my mom made all of my dresses like she would buy this most the littlest things and put things together that just when you saw the little pieces you cannot imagine that that could come together like that and that was something it was just always in me i suppose and to give it a voice yeah that i that just um i believe went a long way right just watching their um yeah thoughtfulness it sounds like that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. And so what did, um, it sounds like your mother was home um, taking care of the extended family. What did your father do for work? Well, he was in revenue administration, uh, administrative services of, with the government. So yeah, what he did on the side other than his job was he was an amateur actor. So he worked with the theater and there were a lot of, creative people coming to our house all the time. And I had a very early exposure to creative adults. And I enjoyed talking to them, hearing them. I used to mostly hear what they were saying. But it was always fascinating when they asked me what I was doing, what I wanted to do. And I would show them my sketchbook and I was rubbish at it. But it it didn't matter, you know, I just, I was just so excited that they even wanted to see. And I shared whatever I made and I used to draw a lot. And it's like little scenes and everything all around me. I was always drawing. My mom could hardly keep up with the supplies of paper and pencils and stuff. It was always that cultural exchange, uh, books being read out loud by mom. I remember the evenings that we used to have, not all the time, but sometimes uh, my father would read out loud whatever he was reading. And my mom would sometimes crochet or knit or she she had a garden. She's an avid gardener. She would be gardening. It was all happening in a balcony. It was not a lot of space, but still, you know, the creativity was not bound by anything. That is what I began to see very early. And I would be drawing and everybody was creative in some way. And there was room for that to grow and develop. Wow, that's wonderful. And so um, what did you go on to study when you went to college? I studied clinical psychology. And I, at a point of time, I was encouraged by a lot of people like, why don't you go into some kind of fine art study and that would be great would be a great fit for you and while I was my mom would also take me to this sit and draw children's art contest so where they basically you go there with your little things and they give you a piece of paper and they tell you okay these are the topics say for example summer day or something like that and they will give you one two sometimes three hours and you come up with a sketch and you draw your paint and you let it dry and you submit and it's all happening within that time range and then they choose a three winners and the winners would get little prize packages my mom learned about that and she would take me to places and 
I found myself going to these places and I used to go because I used to enjoy what everybody else was making around me. How were they interpreting things? It was never anything serious, but I did win a lot of prizes. And then the prizes, the because they were all giving art supplies, right? So it was very exciting. And then when I was um, about, what, eight years old, I started learning with Ramananda Bandhapathyay. He, he, he is a very well-known artist in West Bengal in India. I mean, he's well-known all over India. But I knew him at the time when he had a, a little kid's art school associated with the Ramakrishna Mission. And my mom saw there was a kid sitting, uh, standing there with an, uh, like an art pad. And she asked, oh, oh that's very nice. Where do, do you learn here? And she said, so my mom said, okay, so I'm going to get a form. And that's how I got it. We had to do interview. It was, it, it was obviously, I didn't know the seriousness of any of it at that time, but it was exciting. A lot of people came. It was a bigger deal than I knew. But I got in and for the next five years, I learned different things in that school, like basically not just drawing, painting other things, uh, crafting. And that was a huge influence. And when by the time I was uh, nine, I think that was the first time my painting was taken to West Germany for like a some cultural exchange as part of a cultural exchange to be displayed in one of their museum. And after that, my uh, stuff started coming in magazines. It was not something I was submitting or anything, but, you know, children's magazines. So and so uh, art school had an exhibition and these are the, some of the stuff the kids are making. And they, my teacher, my guru, he would put my art there. And I always thought I was the worst in class. And I was, and you know how, how kids at that stage are quite, vocal about how they feel about other people and so they would make fun of me and uh, we were supposed to draw some animals I drew a lion and somebody told me what is that so I told them it's a lion and he said oh it looks like a donkey and I looked at him and I said he's really right I am not very good at it but there was in a if I were to put all the things uh, people say that was not encouraging on one side of the scale. And I put how I felt about making things, the joy I felt always weighed more. So that was my sole reason at, at that point to keep keep doing it. And then um, around, uh, I believe when I turned 11, I got a national scholarship for painting. And that kept me on toe for the till I left India almost okay and so did you leave India to go to college or when did you leave no so when I wanted to uh, really started considering maybe I could consider taking like art as my academics and my father was you know that's when the cultural real cultural stronghold takes over and he said well you know you can always do this as a hobby you could I want you to really go to college and study something more regular. And they wanted me to study journalism at that point. But I, the political picture around that time was not something that made them feel safe about me becoming a journalist. 
So they said, well, you know, study something else, maybe an academic career down the line, teach at a college or something like that. So I chose to do clinical psychology, which did not have a lot of scope uh, back then in Calcutta. And my I started setting my target as going to Bangalore and study at Nimhans, which was the like a even now the one of the best institutions to study about like neural your neuro developmental and all of those things. But somehow that was not what life had in plans for me. I got married and this is like an arranged marriage that happened out of the blue. And then I got uh, like we got married and a week later I was in the States. Oh, wow. And this is an arranged marriage. I did not know the person I was getting married to. And, you know, when arranged marriages are made in India, or at least in our families, all they see is, okay, the girl comes from a decent background. She is decent to uh, look at. She does, looks healthy and uh, is educated. And the guy makes enough money, looks okay. It's all good. And so I came here and it was, it was very, I don't know how to put it. It was exciting in a way. It was challenging in many ways. It was a lot of learning new things and unlearning old things. Just, just relevance of it all. And your husband, um, he was already living in the United he States. He was already living in the United States, and he was working here as a um, as a software engineer. And it it all just happened pretty uh, quickly. Wow! And when we got here, he he did like that I had an interest in arts. He has a lot of interest in making things with his hands. I mean, he doesn't have a lot of time. But when he does make it, he likes to uh, carve things or, you know, build things. He has that. So he kind of thought that that is something we have in common with each other. And when I came, uh, at first, I thought, oh, great. You know, a girl coming from India now can where to the U.S. where she can study clinical psychology in a much more, like, it opens everything up, but that was not how it went. And for the longest time, uh, I just kept retracing the steps. Like, what did I do wrong? Why is this not a viable option anymore? So when you got here and you tried to pursue your academic career or continue to pursue it, yeah. It sounds like you were running into roadblocks. Was it just you? Was it a language barrier or was there something no, else? No, I, I, language was not a barrier. Of course, you know, it's English is not my first language. So, and th- there are those differences, but that was not what it was. It was like, at first, it was like, well, you know, we just got married. Uh, let's get to know each other a little bit. And I had already applied for my PhD program in India. I got accepted. And here I was coming here with an understanding that I could do that. But then finding out that it is not as easy to walk that path, given the fact that everything that I had done over there, I would really have to start over. Oh, I see. 
and uh, that would be a matter of a lot of time and expense and his uh, my husband's family i did not think they would be wanting to like this is not uh what they have in mind they are seeking somebody who is going to be a wife somebody who's going to be the mother of their grandchildren and all of those things you know so the expectations and then plus yeah. the idea of having to start over really was just an overwhelming feeling of like i don't think this is going to happen oh i tried you i did. tried yeah. and it seemed like like this was happening pre uh 9/11 so at that time you could hop on a bus the only thing that i had at that time was we were living close to uh, the university of south florida campus tampa campus and the uh, the bus that would come because that area was had many apartments for students and one day i just wanted to get on that bus and i i told the driver like hey this is my deal i would just want to find out a little more about usf and may i ride the bus and he said yeah sure so i rode the bus i asked around okay where is the department of psychology can i go and can i talk to people and that is how i came upon this professor dr spielberger and it was interesting because in my master's thesis i had used his tests like the connection between um anger and a lot of negative uh, emotions in and i had used it in the context of uh, how does that impact your creative expression like is there a real difference between uh the anger level for example negative emotion level of a sculptor who is uh putting out or carving out or chiseling out something versus somebody who say a watercolor painter i think the scope of that was very limited the few people that i did get to talk to but it was fascinating i feel that that wellness and creativity seed was sown long long back and uh so i met him and i told him that i had used his uh tests and he said i could come and um uh, just read papers with him and i said i'm not a student here he said that's all right so i started doing that and just being around him you know you pick up so many things around people who are so dedicated to what they do after a while i told my husband well if i cannot do my phd complete that and if i have to start over all of that at least i want to do a certification course that's about to happen and the language while language itself was not a barrier but you know how english is spoken in india is very different from how english is spoken in the us so i couldn't always pick up what was being said and obviously language is spoken in a manner that is also different even though it's the same language so, so i had to overcome those hurdles but even after all of that what i found was that it was certainly my wanting to continue to do this was hurting a lot of the present moment and it was also going to impact the future wow so at that point of time that battle became very internal like i could tell that i couldn't overcome this and i did not have the awareness or consciousness at that time where i could understand okay what is this trying to tell you 
all of this was going smoothly. All of a sudden, why is, what is it trying to tell you? What are you not learning? So, and all, all my life, I've been taught, you know, if you hit a wall, you push through. And right. this was a wall I couldn't push through. Right. I want to take a minute now to talk about our sponsor, Reprint and Repurpose. Reprint and Repurpose is a small business whose goal it is to keep the craft of fiber arts flourishing in a fun and an environmentally sustainable way. Owner Bianca Spaziri reprints and repurposes fabric to be used again for great projects. She upcycles fabric by printing it with new designs, giving it new life. She and her team create their own unique designs and then block print them onto the fabric. All of their designs are totally original. And Bianca is a big believer in conscientious crafting. By using their upcycled fabric, you are helping with this movement. And of course, it's great to take a break from screen time and nurture your hobbies. Reprint and Repurpose is a truly unique upcycled fabric shop that offers an earth-friendly option for all sewists and crafters. They source high-quality, high-thread-count, 100% cotton fabric from thrift stores, dead stock fabric, and pretty much anything that they can revive to get used again. And they use non-toxic fabric ink that is machine washable. So here's how the process works. First, they start with sketches for the designs. This is Bianca's favorite part, coming up with all the different print ideas. Anything is possible, she says. Next, they transfer the designs onto rubber blocks and carve them out to make the stamps. Then they hand print onto the fabric. They source and pre-wash the secondhand fabric. It's all 100% cotton, and they use the non-toxic machine washable ink. Finally, they cut, package, and ship the fabric out to you, right to your doorstep. She says that our creative customers transform this wonderful fabric into projects from quilts to bags to home goods to clothes and pretty much anything else you can imagine. So shop online at reprintandrepurpose.com and follow along on Instagram at reprintandrepurpose underscore shop for the latest news. And be sure to use that discount code podcast10 to get a discount on your order. It expires May 1st, 2021. Thank you so much, Reprint and Repurpose. And now back to my conversation with Mo. What did you do to get past the stage? Because even though this is a really unique, maybe to you moment, I do think it's mm. resonant for people yeah. in other stages and in, in parts of their lives mm. where they've hit a wall that feels impossible to climb. And, mm-hmm. um, and so I wondered if you used art to get past this or how you got past this, because this does feel like it was an insurmountable problem for you. Yeah, I think the... Uh, what it was, it was literally killing me internally. I would torture myself, like retrace the steps. I felt like I've disappointed everybody. And most of all, I have sa- I was given an opportunity that I didn't know how to uh, take advantage of almost. And by this time I was already pregnant and I felt that my, the way I was reacting to this internally was not 
healthy. So at that point of time, I just had to, you know, for a moment, just release it all. Wow. Like I have to just let it all go. Right. And that, that has been a life lesson in this lifetime for me. And just, just to let go. I can't do it. And while everybody else also had things to say, like, oh, you're just giving up. And some people would say, why? Why did you expect that life would continue the same way? All of there was validity in every perspective, but none of those were mine. So I always enjoyed making art. And I remember I bought the, my husband was always very generous. Like, he's like, you don't have to work. I want to do the work. You stay home. You raise children. Like the traditional role of a woman is what he was subscribing to. And I wasn't raised that way. So I was going to a private English medium school, which is not something every girl in India, at least not back then, was doing it. So all of a sudden, I had all of this burden on my shoulders, and I just felt so worthless for not being able to do anything with it. But then comes a time when you know that you just have to let it go. There's nothing I can do. And I bought the biggest canvas I could find. There was this art shop, and I started painting. And um, I I think it took me uh, well over two weeks to finish that painting. But during that time, every time a negative thought came to me, I just stopped. It's like, no, I can't think negative thoughts and paint this painting. I'm painting this painting for my baby and I'm not going to think a negative thought. Right. So I painted that uh, painting with bright yellows and it's like, and I began to see that the, the old feeling that I had that no matter what is negative in my life, if I put it on one arm of the scale, it doesn't weigh as much as the joy I get out of this. Right, which is that old, yes, that, that same comfort. old comfort exactly from back when you were a child in school and yeah. being critiqued by your peers. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So really art was your way out of that. Art was that. always, like I had never thought of art as anything more than a hobby because I never really had enough time to think about it. I had a very busy schedule. I was a competitive swimmer. And school had pressures. So it was never really uh, like I did a lot of things quite mechanically a lot of the times. I just didn't have enough time or guidance to sit down and really think, why am I doing this? But this was a time period when it I was I was still not guided, but I still it was coming from within. Like the things that you hear when you don't talk in your silence when your mind is not chattering, the things that start to come to you. And I just started painting for the uh, uh, duration of my pregnancy. I painted. Then I had my baby. And I realized after some time, once uh, after, after recovering from childbirth and all of those things, that I did not have time for painting. And... It was very hard because we didn't have any, any, anybody helping us out at that point of time. And I didn't know anything. Growing up as an only child, I did not see other children raised. I had no idea what I was doing. I just wanted to like live each day and keep the baby alive. That was my motto. Like, <laughs> yeah. oh my God, I don't know anything. Right. And there was no art happening. There was just all around, there was just overwhelm. Overwhelm of a new baby and uh, like... Taking care of that baby, 
taking care of a household. We had just bought a new house. This was the time when everybody was buying houses. We bought a house and there were, uh, this is Florida. We were, I used to live in Florida back then. And there are crocodiles outside. We lived in this uh, uh, like beautiful golf course community. And there are all these wild creatures. I'm fascinated by them and I'm scared to death. What if a snake comes in and all of those things. Keeping the baby with me and not having any kind of outlet and the social connections that I had at that time, there was no match in value. They were very, they were all people that my husband knew. They are his colleagues and their wives. And it was, I was just lost and I didn't know what I was so upset about. But then one day I went to this library. We had a beautiful library and I pick up this magazine. It said it's a scrapbooking magazine called Creating Keepsakes. And I just, I could borrow the magazine. I got it home and I flipped through it. And it was a rush of, oh, I can do this. I can do that. I can do this. It was a scrapbooking magazine. And I told my husband, I, I need to go and buy some things. And he said, okay, I'll take you. And so we went to Michael's, bought a lot of stuff. And I started scrapbooking. Did not know anything about acid-free. Did not know about <laughs> anything, all those archival things. Sure. Had no idea. But I was making things. My baby would nap. I would hold her because she she would not be put down. If I put her down, she would scream and cry. So I learned to work with one hand. Sometimes I learned to work with my left hand, and the, which is my non-dominant hand. Whatever it was, it was all of a sudden that little window in a dark room that was open. And uh, about 18 months, when my baby was 18 months, I had a health scare. Like I was nursing her and I was having immense difficulty with it. So the doctor checked and they found some some growths in my left breast and that they didn't want me to wait. And I said, well, you know what? I'm nursing my baby. I just follow. Like the baby is the main thing, right? Who thinks of their own health, especially their new mothers. They, are, they don't know that they need to take care of themselves. Uh, so I went in. It was like a Friday evening. The doctor was calling herself and she said, well, you know, a week from now, uh, you need to go and have this surgically removed because we need to do a biopsy on this. And at first I was like, it was not sinking in. And then she said, well, you know, I don't think this is not looking good based on whatever um, the scans and the mammograms are showing me. This is not looking good. I don't want to lie to you. I'm concerned. You have a oh. baby, very young baby. Yeah. Don't delay this. And so... It was a bit, my husband was having more of an emotional reaction than I was because I was almost like stunned, like, oh, this new thing now has to be addressed kind of thing. I don't have time for this. And then I started trying to see, oh, if I'm going to be in surgery, God knows how long it's going to take for me to recover. I started organizing all the things that they are going to need so he can, he would still have to take days from off from work, but I would do everything I could do to Keep everything organized. And the baby was needy, especially when parents are sick. The babies get very much more needy, right? And my husband was also not home because he was trying to work in advance so he could take a few days off. And I was doing this like I heard from them on Friday afternoon. Between Friday afternoon and Monday afternoon, I did all the organizing, laundry and what, everything that I could. And then it hit me what the doctor was saying. And I realized that 
I don't know how bad this is, really. So, or how much time, because, you know, at that point, the the mind constructed a different drama. Like, okay, so what if I don't recover? If this is not good, wh- what? What then? And I feel like, what's most important? Like, I sat down and I asked my, myself, what's, what's most important? What's the most important thing I can do for my daughter? And... I don't know, because maybe because I was reading all that scrapbooking magazine and all that, I had very few photos. My father did not have a camera. I had very few photos. So I took those photos out and I wrote out letters. Whatever art paper I had, I cut them up and I stuck my pictures and I wrote letters to my daughter saying like, hey, I don't know if we are going to read this someday together or you are going to do so alone. But here's my story. And I think it's important you know it firsthand. Everybody is going to tell you a version of me, but this is my version. I did that. And then I had my surgery. It, it, things were not good, but because it was, it was caught in the nick of time, that bought me a lot of time. So I came home and, you know, like after a little bit of time, like once the main recovery phase was done, I was browsing the internet because there were, I still couldn't get up and take care of things. So I was holding her, lying down with her, and I was browsing. And at these were the days of, uh, what do you call those, message boards. And there was this thing called two peas in a bucket message board. And I found that somebody was having a contest. I didn't know anything about them, but it was called My Coolest Album Ever. And the magazine was simple scrapbooks. And I said, oh, what is this all about? And I looked into it. And mind you, I did not know anything about anything at this point. I just took pictures because I was taking so many uh, photos like crazy. My husband got tired of getting them printed. He got me a digital camera. I said, okay, I'm going to take pictures of my album that I made for my daughter pre-surgery. And I sent it off not thinking why I was doing it, but I think there was something that was guiding me, I suppose. I sent it off and I forgot about it. Uh, A month or so later, I was pregnant a second time and I was like, I had dozed off in the afternoon and I phone, uh, the phone rang. I picked up, it was once Stacey Gillian. I did not know who Stacey Gillian was. And then she told me, hey, congratulations. You have won the grand prize. And oh, wow. Thinking, oh, my God. Is this <laughs> a telemarketer? <laughs> well, what is this going on? Like, this is, um, then I, I remembered. And then she explained what was going on. She asked me how I was doing. And I told her that I was doing okay. And it was quite a bit of a surprise. It hadn't sunk in because I fell right back asleep. When I got up, I checked my, and I remembered the phone call. And I checked my phone to see if, I was seeing if it was still registered in my caller ID or was I, I was just having a dream or something. <laughs> and it was. And then the emails started coming in and it started sinking in that I had won a prize doing something. And it was, again, the memories, you know, of those sit and draw art contests that opened the door for me. Right. So I thought, okay, getting published is a thing then. And of course, it didn't like, go right into getting published or anything like that. But it did guide me in that direction. Right. Introduced uh, you to that there was like a whole world. Introduced me to that world. Yeah. 
Yeah, which is so interesting. And so around what year, do you remember around what year that was, just out of curiosity? 2004, 2004. Oh, so this yes. was, yeah, this was a while back. This was sort of in the, kind of the earlier days of the of the online kind of craft yes. world. Yes, and yeah. it's, it was so strange because I never became a regular part of any message board. Like, I like social media, but I don't participate in it. You know, it's it's there, it has its great qualities, but I don't participate. Message boards were also that kind of thing for me. I would much rather make things, you know, than talk about it. Yeah. That is my take on it. Although and you you do have a really nice Instagram account now. That is the only thing I think that spoke to me, which was also very strange. I started that account when we were moving from Tampa to uh, New Jersey. My daughter was at Duke uh, for a summer program and she was not moving with the family. So I said, okay, I can give the first and experience of the move. I'm going to post pictures of every state that we stop in. And that was the start of my Instagram. Account. Oh, okay. You did it <laughs> for, for her. Longest, yeah. For the longest time, it had no rhyme or reason. The whole reason why an average person has a social media account is to share pictures with friends. And that's all that was. And I did not have a lot of friends following me or anything. The first time it became anything was in 2016 when... I had just uh, signed up for Creative Bug to, uh, as, a, as a student, and they had a challenge. There was going to be a month-long challenge in August, or I believe August or September. I don't remember anymore. This was 2016. And I felt like, you know, I never really um, take, I'm not that consistent. I never keep up. If I start a challenge, I've never completed 30 days in a row. It would be nice to do that. So I kind of made it and uh, I wanted to be accountable for it. So I started posting it on Instagram. Yeah, Instagram is good for that. Yeah, yeah, it's a hashtag, you know. Right. Like nobody's going to judge me if I don't do it. But right, right. I would. Sure, sure. So that was motivation enough. And I did it for a month. That month, I remember I had to travel to teach and all of all of those things. Because the scrapbooking thing was still quite the rage and it was still going on and from scrapbooking I had moved more into mixed media and I had this collaboration with Faber-Castell and all of those was those were happening and then this was the first time when Instagram became serious so back to the message board thing yeah I, I that was I don't know I was being led there I feel because I really hardly went back and did message boards yeah. So uh, after that happened and I started submitting and of course I got rejection after rejection and I wanted to understand what is it that made that but nothing else is getting accepted. Then I understood that I wasn't telling my story. In uh, I was trying to paste pretty pictures and pretty papers and stickers. It had no soul in it. So the next thing that I submitted... I wrote my story and that was that opened something in a way that I had never imagined. And for the next, uh, like uh, this is 2005, end of 2005 uh, through 2013 for as long as those magazines existed. It's like obviously 700 publications. I worked so hard. It was, it, it was I was so grateful that this opportunity came to me when I had no hope almost. Like if you don't have hope, you have nothing. 
and it was a lifeline. And these were these were scrapbooking spreads, these scrapbook layouts, that, yes, and layouts that you were making with um, yes. papers and photos and papers, photos, paints, paints whatever. I, and they were um, documents of your own life, and documents you were, of my children growing up, right? And yeah, our everyday life. And that when you say you were telling your story versus um, just using, you know, pretty pictures, what kinds of things like were you being a little bit more vulnerable or what kinds of things? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Because what I had uh, understood in whatever time I had spent uh, with other people, excuse me, uh, it was like, you know, no matter where you were born. And how you were raised, whatever cultural differences you may have, there are some common core things that are common to everybody. It's universal. And those are the stories, you know, that that's what appealed to people. Like this happened. That never made sense. This is what I learned from it. And those kinds of things. And with my children, like they are questions like raising children in a culture that I did not know much of. And helping them, they would come home and they would, we, I was raised Hindu and they would come home and ask, why do we never go to the church? My friends go to the church. They go to the same church. So she felt left out. My oldest, she felt left out. And she asked me this, this kind of serious questions. So taking the time also strengthened that understanding for me that at the very core, there is no difference. Everybody wants the same things. Everybody is hurt by the same things. And there is really, we are just, everything else is uh, the, just the detail, you know. Mm-hmm. But the core is the core. That's the same for all. And when I, it just, it all happened so organically. Now I'm looking back at it and as I'm telling you, it's, I'm connecting those dots looking back. But right. When that was happening, I had no idea. Sure. I was just trying to make sense of life for myself, for my children, trying to keep like one foot in the boat that's still in India, keep that connection. And in every possible way, seeing that not everybody gets this opportunity to come and live in a different country, a different culture, or even a land that has so many more opportunities. I could not be probably be not be doing what I was doing at the time if I was still living in India. Right, and that right. purpose began to become clear. And that is when like letting go became much easier. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, you know, I didn't, I never expected to become an artist. I never expected to like do anything creative in this kind of public way. It it was my refuge. I was never good at it. And here I was doing something that some people in this world looked up to, something I was doing that was speaking to them. They could relate to it, even though their story started somewhere else, looked very different, but there was some common thread, just like you were saying. And then I started to move more toward mixed media. Like um, it was no longer just photos and everything. I started playing. I started kind of easing into it that it is okay. My creativity is okay in this world. It may not be 
what anybody else makes and it's okay so when i started doing that more opportunities began the more i accepted myself i felt that creativity is such a process of self acceptance the more i accepted myself the right people showed up the right opportunities showed up and then fast forward to uh 2016 i was posting those pictures on instagram and then it turned out it was actually there was a call to become a creative bug teacher associated with it which i didn't know at the time but i found out thanks to courtney saruti at the right time and i said okay you know what if this is a matter of uh just sending that thing i will send it and then they said that you have to uh film a video of yourself talking to the camera and that was another thing i was like oh my god i don't look good in a video i don't sound good in a video and all of those things that you know that are so irrelevant but the first thing that comes to mind what i don't have and then i just had to stop myself like you know what i'm not they are not asking me to send a video because i'm going to be a supermodel <laughs> right they are just asking me to send a picture of me teaching and me talking to a camera that's it be you and be you is the hardest thing to be so i sent that with zero expectation and then it turned out that i was doing what was right like i don't know how to put this like i was doing what was right for me and in this case it was good enough yeah and you have filmed several many classes with creative bug yes. including yes. some daily challenges which yes. is what you first um got excited about yes. as a student at creative yes. bug um and so i'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what you've learned from kind of the perspective of your own artwork and as a teacher even as um marketing your own work just in the process of working collaboratively with that team because i know you know it's one thing to be self-trained mm-hmm. i mean you had mm-hmm. art classes as a child but as yeah. an adult you're a more of a self-trained artist and yes. certainly um you know you've created this art career for yourself but then when you go and to their studios and you work with creative bug it's it's a whole different level a whole different yes. experience so talk a little bit about what you learned from that experience i think a lot of it is like my fear of being bad at art was sorted very early i knew i was the worst i had no expectation of being perfect being good even i did it because i loved it and that is what is still true there are many people who do much better work than me but i love it and that is enough and that is i think that has become something this wellness through creativity like why do you create there are people who would sit down and say oh i can't do it like you but why are you trying to do it like me you do it like you because you have to know why are you doing it of course if you are going to make it into a career then those considerations are going to come in like it does with any career that's not the same thing as i'm talking about why do you create if you are creating for 
to sell your work? Yes, you are signing up for some some stress, of course, like anything else. But if you are doing it as a release of stress, then why do you care? Why it doesn't measure up to somebody else's work? Just make the time, make the space and do it. That is one of the things I learned. This is as much a lesson for me as for anybody else, because whenever I look at anybody, oh, everybody's better than me. Any day, any given day, everybody is better than me. That's all right. I am who I am, and that is where I stand right now. And another thing, and that this is especially having to let go of a, of a good thing that was happening with the clinical psychology, was nothing is everything. For as long as I held on to it, thinking that that's everything, I lost everything, I was losing more. When I gave that up, I just understood nothing is everything. Today, this is it. This is important. Tomorrow, it will lead to something else maybe. Who knows? Who knows? This is something that's making me happy today. I am doing it. And I think that joy comes across in the biggest possible way. All of the publications, all of the things was not because I was perfect or that my work was better than anybody else's. It was simply because... I chose to be vulnerable. I chose to say, yes, this happened, this sucks, and it felt bad. I'm trying to get over it. This is how I'm doing it. And I think giving myself permission to just be and not have to be, you know, something big with it let's, keeps me going. And uh, like around 2010, Faber-Castell was, uh, there's a story with Faber-Castell too, because when I was about eight years old, because I drew and painted and it was my hobby, my father's friend, he used to live in Germany and Faber-Castell is a German company. He got me a pack of pencils. They were so precious to me, I would not sharpen them. Like they were so blunt, but I would just not sharpen them because I didn't want them to like go away and sharpening a pencil would make it go away almost. I got that little pencil case when I came to the U.S. with me. That was one of the few of my belongings that I brought with me when I came. Because I only came here with one suitcase. And when in 2010, they reached out to me to become uh, one of their design team members, ambassador, their brand ambassador. I was like, wow. How did they I find How did they find you? I somehow, like you found me, Abby, people find me. <laughs> I just do my thing, people find me. Right, right, okay. <laughs> so that's how they found me. And I still have a very good relationship with them. I still continue, uh, like every month I uh, do uh, blog posts for them. And that kind of started leading me more toward mixed media, more toward teaching and come... Uh, yeah, last year, February of last year, just before COVID became uh, like all the close downs and happened, I had my first fine art show, a solo exhibition, because I felt I used to think, you know, the worst thing, what I scared, I'm most scared of is uncertainty. But then I understood, no, what I'm most scared of is complacence and becoming stuck and mixed media was great I, I'm, I'm still doing it but I wanted to venture back to the pure thing that I used to do before I had children and uh, if you could see me you could see there was a painting right behind me it took me 17 years to complete this painting oh, wow. I started it before my daughter was born 
but I couldn't finish it because I just couldn't find the time. So I left it in a position where it was like semi-complete, but I completed it this year in January. That's great. And I know your daughter graduated from high school this yeah. past, and she's going to Johns Hopkins. Is that right? She's going to Johns Hopkins. And yeah. I, I wanted to tell you that I went to Johns Hopkins and, oh, um, wonderful. and so did my dad. So I have a special place in my heart for Johns Hopkins, but. Oh, she yeah. loves it. She oh, good. I'm so glad she's set happy. foot there. But, you know. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. But she will. She will. It's yeah, just. Uh, I, I loved it. The day I went there, my son asked me, why didn't you take pictures? of her standing on like this, that in the scrapbooking days, I used to make them stand and they were younger back then. They would do that. Now they won't. <laughs> but, and she he said, well, you didn't take a picture. And I blurted out, well, I'll be back here. And my daughter was like, mm. it's like you are setting expectations. I never know if I can get in or not. And I'm like, you know, you never know. Just because I said something, do not take it as gospel. But yeah, I'm glad she is going to this college. I loved it. That's yeah. the only college I visited with her. And I knew when I stepped foot there that she's going to come here. But I couldn't tell her that. Right. It's a great place. She'll yeah. she'll get a great education. So yes. Um, so that's great. Um, and so so you you had this goal of getting back to, to doing fine art and you had this solo ex- exhibition and and do you have any other sort of future goals now that your your kids are growing up and you're sort of entering this next phase? Yeah, um, I, I have a six year old, so I'm I won't say I'm quite out of oh, that. Oh, true. Yet. Your kids are but spread out. Yeah. Yes, yes. The first two were so close together; they were like two two and a half years apart, and I had a hard time raising them just by myself because their father was always traveling and busy, and still it is like that. But at least they are older. Um, yeah, I am, I'm kind of going back to that. I I feel I'm in a very transitional phase where I don't exactly know uh, what's next, but the immediate thing, anytime I try to make a big plan, life tells me that's not how it works. So I make very small plans these days. And right now I'm working on the 100 day project. I'm working on the acrylic Uh, painting with acrylic on paper. I usually work on canvas or, you know, those uh, wood panels. But this time I decided I'm going to do this on paper. And I obviously what I'm doing on day one is going to, I mean, I would, I would see the progress by day hundred, I hope. So that is what I'm doing. I have some more, yeah, some more solo exhibitions coming up locally, mostly. But, you know, even that's a huge step because for, I would have regretted had I told myself that you never went to art school. How dare you? I dared anyways. It's OK. And I sell paint and my paintings sell. That's what is most surprising, because when I look at that, I remember Donkey Girl. <laughs> they used to call me Donkey Girl because my lines look like donkeys. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's a joke almost like it feels like a joke. The joke is on them. Because when all this was happening uh, and my teacher, he used to say, you know, uh, I asked him, some, some parent asked me, like, how on earth did he choose your painting to send to the magazine? Because our kids' paintings are better. And they are. I don't disagree with that. So I asked, and I was very innocent. I was very young. So I asked my teacher. So somebody asked me, why did you pick my painting? And he told me, I see something that they don't. And I asked him, what is it? And he said, 
Well, I can tell you, but you would love it much more if you find it out by yourself someday. And I, okay, uh, I didn't like that answer. I would, I wish he had told me. But now when I look at it, I feel I have found my version of the answer. And that would be obnoxious tenacity. I won't give up. Because it is not an external validation thing for me. Right. It's just I have to do it. It is not something I can't not do. Right. Right. I love that obnoxious tenacity. Yes. <laughs> that's great. I that's what sets me apart. I, Mo, I relate to that in other ways of my life. Um, I'm just one of those people also who just never gives mm-hmm. up. And so I think that's cheers to obnoxious tenacity. That's a great, yeah, that's yes. a great trait to have. And, um, and just doing things that find, that you find internal joy. And yes. whether or not externally other people are telling you they're any good. <laughs> I think that's, yes. yeah, yes. I think that's fantastic. And, um, and if it's okay with you, I want to, um, make sure we get to your list. I know you had already yes. recommended your 100 day project. Um, and, and if anyone hasn't checked out the 100 day project, it, it's already going on for this year, but it's a great, um, way to sort of tackle something. You set up your own project and you just do something for a hundred days. And if you want to, you can post about it on Instagram. And it's, um, just a, a great way to improve on something that, um, that you want to improve on and, and do every day for a hundred days. So yeah. yeah, that's awesome. And, and then you also wanted to recommend working with air dry and oven bake clay with your six year old. Yeah. My six year old is very creative and she's at that stage of life where they actually like making things with you because they love the time spent with you. And just, she's good. She's my, I look at everybody, everybody's better. And I think that of course I'm partial to her, but she's creative. She has that sense of humor and that the things that she makes and the things that she says when we do it, it's just, it's, we are really loving that activity together. Like what we are making is so entirely irrelevant, but the process of it is just beautiful. That's great. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's great. I love that. Um, and, um, and then you also wanted to recommend, um, I think this is a book, The Four Disciplines yes. of Execution. I've never read this book before. Well, it is actually a business progress kind of book. And while it may not, uh, seem like a very spiritual thing to read or even artistic, so to say. Um, I am finding it somehow very nicely fits into what I, I kind of, like I was telling you, it's my, my life lesson is to allow and to let go. And it's very hard for me. But when a book comes my way, it it's undeniably comes my way. Like I would hear 10 people say it. Somebody would hand it to me, read this to the point. Some, a book would fall off the shelf on my head. And this was one of those books. So I started reading it and I saw like we, when we were talking about business and I was thinking, what am I going to say? I really do not follow specific business principles. All I do is I show up every day and I do the work. And when I, do it without intense expectations from it. Everything that needs to come my way comes my way. And it may sound ridiculous and not at all a business thing one can follow. Uh, This book is showing me like, you know, small goals, small goals, week by week goals, like 
then when I wake up, what do I do today? What am I going to do this week? So that's my goal. I'm going to make at least three paintings, if possible, seven. And yes, I understand that I may not be able to sit uh, with my paints each day, but there will be days when I might be able to finish two. And that's okay. I'll remain flexible with that. And I'll set a goal that this is the number of paintings I am going to finish. And if there is a need, I'm simply going to request that from the universe. That's just how it is. Remember when I was doing scrapbooking, I everything was so expensive and I was not making any financial contribution. So I was very conscious about asking my husband. He would always buy me whatever I wanted, but I didn't want to take advantage of that. And I would like pray, God, find a way so that I don't have to buy all of these supplies all the time. And I became part of such great design teams and magazines that I got way more stuff than I needed. And I could generously give it to people. And so they could, the things that they wouldn't otherwise buy. So for me, it's very weird. It sounds weird when I say it out loud, but that is just how it is. I need this. I would say like, okay, so I need this and that's it. And then I will go get back to doing what I was doing. And if I say, for example, I said, well, I want to make this money in this time because of I want to buy this. And that afternoon, a commission showed up in my inbox and I completed that commission, some another teaching opportunity. And it made that exact sum that I needed. I do think setting those intentions and um, saying them out loud, I, I agree with you, it does sound weird, but somehow um, making them real starts with um, actually saying them and not yes. just keeping them all in your mind, writing them down, telling them to somebody else, you know what I mean, is the first yeah. step in yeah. manifesting them. So yes, it's not going to make them magically happen, but if no. you never no. um, really state what it is you yes. want to have happen, it's probably never going to happen. So Um, so I do think that's a a really smart first step. And, and this book is called the four disciplines of execution, execution. So it goes by 4DX people in business might be familiar with the 4DX method, but it's like, you know, simply setting a small goal and doing things that we believe is going to move us closer to that goal, like breaking it into small chunks. Like if I say hundred day, hundred paintings, oh my God, that is numbing right off the bat. But I don't do it that way. It's three, three to seven paintings, at least three paintings. That's what I would hold myself accountable to. And that is how I'm moving forward. And I have completed three weeks. So that is how I want to go, keep going. And if I, something happens and I cannot do it, I will come back to it. I may not end with everybody else, but I will make, I'll finish my race. Whether I win, whether I place, whether I come dead last, I will finish my rest, <laughs> right. even if it takes me 365 days. Right, right. I love that. Well, Mo, you are very wise, and I really appreciate oh, you. you sharing your wisdom with us. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. My pleasure. Thank you so much. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was brought to you by Reprint and Repurpose. Reprint and Repurpose is a small fabric business. They have so much fun creating upcycled fabric, offering crafters like you an earth-friendly fabric choice that can be used in all your projects, from quilts to apparel. 
So go ahead and visit Reprint and Repurpose online at reprintandrepurpose.com. And remember to use your coupon code PODCAST10 for a discount on your order. Thank you so much, Reprint and Repurpose. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. When you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. Join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.